Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast that explores solutions for sustainability and equity in water. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This is episode number 200, the PFAS puzzle, an epilogue. It's the end to a series about lessons from a contaminated Cape Fear. The forever chemicals were dumped in the North Carolina River for almost 40 years before anyone discovered. This series looks at how a community responds when it's the epicenter of PFAS pollution. I'm offering this epilogue as a way to look back at all the episodes in the series and reflect on some of the key insights that came from the people that I interviewed. I talked to eight different experts from various sectors, including scientific research, public health experts, the drinking water utility, regulators, and advocates. I'm going to go back and play some of the sound bites that really jumped out to me and share why I thought they were important. This has also been a very personal series for me. I lived in the community of Wilmington, North Carolina from 1997 to 2001 and drank the water without knowing what was in it. In the time after that, I went on to work for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and their Office of Water, very uh, involved in PFAS there. Also dealt with PFAS as the Communications Director at the Water Environment Federation, and it's certainly been a big topic on the Waterloop podcast. I moved back to Wilmington in the summer of 2017, right when the story broke about PFAS in the river and the water, and decided to launch this series a few years ago to dig into what has happened. Then I've had the opportunity as a resident of this community to get the inside perspective of how it's affected people and be able to talk to folks that were on the front lines of responding to this situation. Before I start the episode, I do want to acknowledge the sponsors that have made it possible. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet and depends on support. I want to give the biggest thanks to the three sponsors, Black and Veatch, Ultra, and PFASCOMS.com. I really encourage you to please look them up. They are experts in what they do on PFAS and can be a great resource. Again, thank them for their support. You're in the Waterloop. I had to start the series on PFAS with where the story of PFAS really became unearthed. There was great scientists here in North Carolina, including that worked for the U.S. EPA and also for North Carolina State University that really discovered the presence and prevalence of PFAS and especially Gen X in the Cape Fear River. I think our scientists are obviously so critical to our understanding of these chemicals, understanding where they are in our environment, how they impact us. I give them just so much credit for the work they do. It was really interesting to me that Dr. Detlef Kanapi from North Carolina State, one of the leading scientists to make the discoveries here in North Carolina, uh, when he had the information, he tried to take it forward, and that was a challenge. Why didn't we worry about this earlier, right? But, but if you're talking about completely unknown chemicals and given our current regulatory system, it was, was a challenging sort of 
task to really convince people something is, is not right. And, and really, the paper alone didn't make that impact, right? It was, and I, I tried to dis, you know, share the paper with state regulators, with people at EPA, with drinking water providers. And you know, I think you know, the, the response in, in general was maybe still one of, we don't know what to do with this, given our current regulatory construct. So you hear from Dr. Detlef Kanapi in that soundbite how the scientific community unearthed the presence of PFAS and especially Gen X in the Cape Fear River, but then they struggled to get attention. This was back in 2015, 2016, even 2017, when PFAS was not at the level of attention and awareness that it is now. Again, the Cape Fear community was really one of the first communities to deal with the discovery and how to respond to this. Uh, you heard him say that it was tough to get the attention of, of regulators and of utility directors. And even if they had their attention, there really wasn't an understanding of how to tackle these chemicals. What do you do? Well, that led to the story coming out through the media instead of coming out from you know, environmental officials and health officials. And that became a problem here in Wilmington, as you could imagine. More on that in a little bit. As I talked to Dr. Detlef Kanapi, I wanted to focus on some of the solutions. What were the positives that came out of this situation? How did a community respond in a, in a good way? And I think um, as you saw here in North Carolina and as you've seen around the country, it uh, has really galvanized the scientific community and helped to pull together a lot of the researchers. Let's listen to Dr. Kanapi again. As a result of these early collaborations, we then established a, a Superfund Research Center that's funded through NIEHS, where we have four projects, uh, one that's focusing on human exposure, one on toxicology, one on bioaccumulation in the aquatic food web, and then one on remediation that, that I'm leading. Uh, but then on top of that, you know, the, the North Carolina legislature also uh, mandated that you know, universities across the state uh, address you know, knowledge gaps related to PFAS, and that led to the establishment of the NCPFAS testing network uh, that's led through the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory. So a positive to come from a negative situation. Here in North Carolina, again, the scientific community came together. Researchers from different universities, NC State, North Carolina Chapel Hill, East Carolina University, uh, really came together to share knowledge and to look at what needed to be learned about PFAS. We know it is so complex and there are all these angles to consider. The impacts on the environment, the impacts on human health, the impacts on wildlife. How toxic is this? How does it move through the world? Uh, and so the establishment of a Superfund Center, this collaborative that formed in North Carolina with different scientists um, has really been a positive and I think something that we We've seen kind of develop around the country. Now, one of the things that Dr. Kanapi told me is one of the greatest 
sound bites I believe in this series. It's one of the most important points, um, not just about PFAS, but about the presence of chemicals in our world and in our society. Uh, it's the precautionary principle. Let's hear what he has to say. This gets maybe into a question of just how we deal with unregulated contaminants in general, right? And we, it's not regulated, a drinking water provider is not violating a regulation, a discharger may not even violate a regulation, and there's some debate over that, but, um, you know, we, I think we just need to change in this case to something that I call, or what is generally called the, the precautionary principle, right? We we, we shouldn't expose people to, you know, unknown chemicals and, and, and pretend that that's okay just because they are not regulated. I'm not sure how you all feel, but that resonates with me uh, so strongly. Uh, I think our system is backward. The idea that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of chemicals now have been created and put out into the world before we've looked at their toxicology, their impacts to people. Um, instead, we wait till there's a problem and then try to try to take it in reverse. I think that's completely wrong. And I, I love this idea of a precautionary principle. Like, let's show uh, how a chemical impacts people and the environment before industry is allowed to use it and put it out into our world. Uh, unfortunately, it's the opposite. Uh, and that's why we've got so many problems, not just with PFAS, but with all of these other chemicals out there. So again, that precautionary principle, uh, something that I really will carry with me from this series. For the next episode, I wanted to talk to the water utility here in Wilmington, North Carolina, about the story and what unfolded on their side, how they responded. Obviously, when PFAS is released into the environment, chances are it's going to end up in the water. Uh, that's certainly the case when a facility located on the Cape Fear River discharged their waste into the river for almost 40 years. Uh, there's a facility in Fayetteville, North Carolina, maybe 100 miles upstream of Wilmington, where I am, that discharged. It was a DuPont facility for a long, long time until they spun off into Camores in about 2015. But I wanted to talk to the utility to see what happened. My local utility is called the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority, and they learned about these chemicals from some of those researchers, those scientists, uh, before the story became public. And they struggled with how to respond. Again, this was happening in 2015, 2016, before PFAS was really on the national radar. Uh, so utilities didn't know what to do in this situation. They didn't know how big of a deal this was. They didn't know about the health impacts to people, uh, what treatment to use to attack this, uh, what the regulatory landscape uh, looked like around these chemicals. So I spoke with the current utility director, Ken Waldrop. He was not 
the director of CFPUA when all of this happened, 2015 to 2017. He just came to Wilmington a few years ago, but obviously he has gotten himself very up to speed on what transpired over all those years uh, and is very knowledgeable and has a lot of good perspective to share. Let's get his thoughts on what happened at that utility when PFAS was discovered in the river and in the water. This subfamily of PFAS, uh, represented by this chemical Gen X, was prevalent in uh, CFPUA source water. And it became clear that the treatment processes in place were not reducing or removing it. So it would move through the treatment plant to the finished water, to the drinking water. Utility staff at that time were asking the question, what does this mean? What are these chemicals? What are the sources? Uh, are there any known public health impacts at these concentrations? Um, they were asking themselves, are the testing methods uh, valid? What is our confidence in the testing methods? They were asking the researchers. They were asking other utilities. They were asking the North Carolina Department of Environmental Resources, the same questions. And there were no answers. There were no answers. This was a tough time for a utility to discover PFAS pollution and at the extent that it was here in the Cape Fear River and in the water of the utility here in Wilmington. Unfortunately, that caused the utility at that time to just kind of be frozen up a little bit on how they should respond, what should they do, who should they tell. Uh, and then eventually the information about PFAS, Gen X in the river and in the utilities water got out through the media. That is how the community learned about these chemicals in their water. And as you all can imagine, that was uh, extremely alarming very concerning for the community, a major story, and they had their kind of trust in the utility really shattered uh, because they heard about it from the press and not from the utility itself. I think there's really best practices out there at water utilities where you want to be as transparent as you possibly can. You want to be open, you want to be proactive. You tell the community, you tell your customers what you know and what you don't know and what you're gonna be doing and what you've done. Uh, and you keep that information flowing. Uh, now, I'm again, Ken Waldrop was not here in Wilmington at that time. I think he has really uh, stressed and emphasized uh, transparency and the flow of information to the community since he came aboard to lead this utility. I will give a lot of credit to CFPUA because they decided they were going to have to find a way to treat for these chemicals. And they pushed forward without having funding from the polluter with a solution. This utility uh, understood that it couldn't wait for the federal or state regulatory process to generate the answers that it needed. The, the community leaders, uh, the, the customers themselves, were asking for some immediate action. So the utility chose to begin a crash course in 
analyzing and evaluating multiple treatment technologies to remove PFOS. I actually looked at uh, three treatment technologies, reverse osmosis, granular activated carbon, and ion exchange resins. This utility, uh, after this pilot testing program, decided to land on granular activated carbon as its solution set. So this utility spent $43 million on granular activated carbon system. That system came online in October of 2022, uh, and it immediately brought PFAS levels down to no detect or just right about at no detect. All of us ratepayers in the community had had and I think still have about $5 more a month on our bill to pay for this system and the ongoing operations and maintenance. Uh, it's incredible that the granular activated carbon, they have to change those, those treatment beds out on a pretty regular basis. They take that GAC then, put it on trucks, ship it to New York to get cleaned and rejuvenated and, and ready to use again. So uh, this is an ongoing process. And again, all of us ratepayers had to pay for this. Um, I'm glad. I will happily pay $5 a month to have that level of treatment and very clean water here in Wilmington. So we went from having highly contaminated drinking water from the Gen X and the PFAS uh, to having some of the cleanest drinking water. Uh, I'm really glad that my utility has gone that direction. One of the things that's amazing to me is I'm part of this community, so I'm always out and about. Uh, and even though the utility has uh, spread, the, spread the word about the filters, put commercials on TV, had stories on the news, posted to social media, there are still so many people that I run into in Wilmington on a regular basis that think we still have toxic water. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that disconnect in awareness. Um, so I'm doing my little part as an ambassador to let people know like, hey, actually we've got awesome water now. They've got these filters in place and they're trying to recoup the cost of that, of that equipment uh, from the polluter. Check this out. We have expended now uh, the $43 million facility that you're in today. Other expenditures such as the change-out program in the existing filters, uh, testing of groundwater. So there's groundwater contamination also. We're close to $50 million of expenditures with another $60 million on the horizon in terms of operation. And we're asking in court for Chemors to be responsible for those costs. Um, and... We've litigated this now for four, almost five years, and we are just in the discovery phase. So like any litigation, it'll take a long time. I'm really glad that my utility has taken the polluter to court to try to recoup that money. The utility also worked to get the polluter into a consent decree to deal with the discharges and emissions at that facility. And uh, my utility is taking uh, DuPont to court to try to keep them liable and not be allowed just to spin off this other facility. A lot more on that in a little bit, but uh, I think this is 
the way utilities need to treat these situations. They need to stand up to the polluters. They need to stand up for their customers uh, and pursue legal action. Waterloo. Another episode in this series was all about advocacy. What happens in a community when PFAS pollution is discovered? How do those environmental organizations get involved? What do they do? Uh, I'm really lucky to be in a community where we have some incredible advocates that fight for water and people. So I talked to Kemp Burdett. He's the Cape Fear Riverkeeper. And I also talked to Dana Sargent. She is the executive director of Cape Fear River Watch. Uh, they kind of work together. And uh, I was just so impressed by their fight, their knowledge, and their commitment to this issue. Uh, it's very interesting to look at the many balls that a environmental group has to juggle in a situation like this. I think the first initial reaction was, what? It was like, what is this? You know, nobody had heard of it. Most of the time in environmental advocacy, like you're, you're not surprised by a new contaminant that is completely outside your wheelhouse of understanding. So that was the beginning of what the heck is this stuff? And so I think for Cape for River Watch, we just dug into trying to research and figure out what it is. And uh, so that was the first step was like educating ourselves. Um, and at the same time, making sure that we were providing opportunities to take what we've learned and to share it with the public because the public was scared. So you hear from Dana there, uh, kind of about the multiple challenges or responsibilities that fall on an advocacy group during a time like this. Again, this all kind of emerged back in 2017, before PFAS was as known as it is now. So you had these advocates that kind of had to to put themselves through a crash course on these chemicals. Where do they come from? Uh, how do they move the environment? Uh, what do threat do they pose to human health? How can we get rid of them? Uh, how are they regulated? So they had to take on that incredible education, but then at the same time, they had to be an information conduit um, for the community. They had to be a shoulder to cry on, you know, uh, someone that would listen to the concerns of the people that were terrified and wondered what was going to happen to them because of these chemicals. And then at the same time, they had to start ramping up their fight, their work with regulators, their legal action against polluters. Um, and as many of you probably know, these environmental groups are not uh, so wealthy and so resourceful with, with funds. So they are taking on all of this work and all of this fight on behalf of their community. And it's just, uh, it's so admirable to me. And I'm, again, so grateful to the work that they do. The other thing is, uh, through this series and through living here in Wilmington, a, a community that's been contaminated, uh, and then being out if on my own now, uh, it's really kind of rekindled, rekindled the environmentalist in me in a way. You know, when you're at a government agency or you're part of an organization, um, you take that perspective a little bit. Uh, you, you kind of have things come through a filter. Um, you feel maybe somewhat even defensive of the work that your agency or, or organization does. Uh, but for me, 
being in an impacted community, doing this series, talking to people. Uh, it's really kind of reignited my environmentalist passion, if you will. I feel angry knowing how polluters do this and the little power that there is to fight against them. I feel angry knowing how our system and laws are set up that allow this to continue. I feel angry that agencies and others are not changing that system quickly and definitively in a way to address this. Two of the sound bites that came from Kemp Burdett, the Cape Fear Riverkeeper, really resonate with me. The idea that you can just trust that your water is safe uh, because, you know, like the government is providing it or a utility is providing it. The idea that, that there's no way that, that as, a, as a country we would allow industrial polluters to dump really dangerous chemicals into a drinking water supply, that is just not true. Um, that happens all the time. It's happening right now. Uh, and it's going to continue to happen uh, because we are not preventing it from happening. Kemp's words are just a real reality check. You know, I, again, I worked at EPA, all the pride in the world for that incredibly smart people, dedicated people. Uh, and I know so many people at utilities, smart people, dedicated people, but there are flaws in the system and you can support those entities and at the same time be active in looking at how the system's working, what's in our environment, what's in our water, what needs to change. Um, and that, again, Kemp's words really kind of lit a fire under me. Um, he said something else, too, that, that kind of builds on this. You see this over and over and over again in, in like the kind of work that I do. People end up paying the price for industry that's unwilling to, to clean up their act. They, they dump pollution in our waterways, and we pay for it one way or another. We either pay for it through you know, our rates to clean this stuff up or our, 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 you know, bills when we go to the hospital for cancer or, you know, the loss of our natural resources or our loss of our property values, whatever it is, we end up paying for industry that, that doesn't, you know, do the right thing. Do you think that there's a lot to the system that's broken? And as Kemp just said, the consequences fall on the people and they fall on our environment. Uh, and we, I guess, have to make changes so that we can better address these situations proactively. Uh, and that's a, that's a tough ship to turn around, that's for sure. Um, but again, a lot, talking to our local advocates, being in a community that's been impacted, uh, having people in the community whose health is impacted, uh, having so many people that are scared, um, having children in a community that know about this chemical in their water um, really has kind of, uh, you know, motivated me in a, in a different way. We can support our federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies. We can support our water utilities and at the same time push for change in how things work and in how polluters are held accountable and in how our environment is handled. Like Kemp said, we can't just trust 
that everything's okay. We have to look and learn for ourselves and follow in these situations. Another episode in the series was all about public health, human health. A huge part of the response in North Carolina has been to ramp up the studies of how PFAS impacts humans. I'm so grateful for these scientists that are out there, these researchers that are studying PFAS and advancing the science on human health. This has been one of the biggest areas for uh, our country and the world to learn about is how does PFAS actually impact people? This is still a very evolving area, but there is a good bit that is known. And I spoke with Dr. Jane Hoppen from North Carolina State University, one of the leading researchers in this area. So what we see consistently is that people have higher PFAS Increases in cholesterol. People with higher PFAS um, are at higher risk for kidney cancer, breast cancer, testicular cancer. PFAS um, may influence um, liver enzyme functions. Higher PFAS are related to altered thyroid function. Part of the challenge in understanding PFAS health effects is that their impacts are on these really important systems that, uh, like the immune system, for example, it looks like there's some changes to the immune system and how it responds. And things like uh, reduced fetal and infant growth and um, potentially increased risks of preeclampsia. So there you go from a, a leading public health scientist, what the known health impacts are from PFAS. And certainly those impacts vary depending on the level uh, and duration of PFAS exposure. And there is certainly a wave of research underway right now to uh, better understand, more thoroughly, comprehensively understand the human health impacts. Uh, so one of the things that Dr. Hoppen and others did when this story broke about PFAS in the Cape Fear region of North Carolina is launch a big study uh, of people's blood to see what was going on. We were chasing this chemical Gen X, this, this fluoroether that um, was uh, discharged to the river by the Chemours facility. And so we were focusing on that, but when we were measuring blood, we also wanted to look at PFOA, PFOS, PFHXS, all the ones that are measured in, in people in the, in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey every year, so we would have standard data. And we were totally surprised that the levels in Wilmington were so much higher than the national average at that point in time. Pretty scary findings by the public health researchers. Gen X was the specific type of PFAS uh, that was really coming out of this uh, DuPont slash Kimors facility upriver in Fayetteville. So they started looking in people's blood for this. And as you heard from Dr. Hoppen, they found a host of other PFAS and at levels that are higher than the national average. Uh, there's, there's certainly some other sources upriver um, from Wilmington where, where these other PFAS are coming from. 
I gave my blood as part of the study a few years ago. I wanted to see what was going on. And it came back that my kind of overall PFAS levels were around 11 uh, nanograms per microliter. And the national average is maybe around seven. Uh, so I have elevated PFAS compared to the national average, uh, but I'm still in the range of two to 20. Um, when I guess you're not overly concerned about the health impacts. Uh, I gave blood very recently for another round of this study, and I'm really curious to see uh, what my levels are now, what has happened over maybe the two or three years since I, since I gave blood. Has, have those levels decreased? Has my PFAS exposure remained the same? So it's going to be really interesting. I'll, I'll post about that on social media for sure. One of the things I found interesting during uh, these interviews with the public health researchers was just how they were impacted professionally and personally by having this happen in their community. I spoke with Dr. Jamie DeWitt, a leading toxicologist uh, at East Carolina University. I knew there are people getting exposed. I knew there are populations of individuals, and I'd met some people who were advocating for their communities. But it really hit home to me when I went to this meeting in my state, in a community not very far from where I live. And when I, when I looked out into the audience and saw fear on people's faces, that's when I realized that, that my work could have more impact than just scientific publications in various journals. That's where I realized that there were people counting on me to generate data to help decision makers make decisions about protecting their health, not just the health of a community, but the health of Dana and Emily and other people in the audience looking to me. Yeah, I just found that so uh, interesting and inspiring how these scientists have been uh, moved and motivated by the presence of PFAS in the community. Uh, Dr. DeWitt also talked about how it has shifted uh, her work and also offered advice to other scientists who might be working on PFAS. My advice would be make sure that you're studying an endpoint that is going to be useful to regulatory scientists and decision makers. Sometimes when, when chemicals become really popular, you see an explosion of scientific research, which is great, right? The more data, the better. But not all scientific research is going to advance basic understanding of how a chemical works, and not all scientific research is going to be useful for decision making. So I would say, you know, think about what you're trying to understand by studying PFAS and make sure that it's going to advance basic scientific knowledge or and advance what we understand about PFAS hazards so that we can identify those risks and start to implement remediation or regulatory controls. Great advice from a really accomplished and very involved scientist. Uh, all the work that's going on on PFAS, let's make sure that it's uh, useful and practical and that we can use it to uh, help to solve this situation. This is just some more of the positives that have come out of this negative situation. Um, scientists here in North Carolina giving good advice, 
networking and talking to other scientists around the country, sharing what they've learned and helping to elevate the work elsewhere and uh, feeding it into what's happening on the regulatory side, which is my next segment. Waterloop. For the regulatory episode, I had so many questions. It, it just kind of boggles my mind how chemicals can be discharged into our environment how the sources of these discharges, the polluters, are so easily able to avoid responsibility and liability, uh, and how the system just does not change to take this on. So I started by talking to Jeff Gisler, uh, an attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, and I wanted to understand some of these, uh, these fundamental questions. So the way that the Clean Water Act works is unless you are given specific permission to put something in a stream or river, you're not allowed to. And that's not being implemented consistently enough. You know, when we think about the Clean Water Act, the goal of the Clean Water Act is not to regulate levels of pollution in rivers, it's to eliminate it entirely. The problem is not with the law, it's with the way it's been enforced. And for too many years, the, the, the approach that state agencies have been taking, the approach that polluters have been taking is, I'm going to dump it until someone tells me no. That's one of those quotes that just kind of leaves me stunned. The Clean Water Act is supposed to protect our waterways from pollution. Has it just been warped in its implementation, in its understanding, in its interpretation? What's going on? Uh, it's, it's shocking to me. The idea is that you need a permit to dump something into water. But it seems federal and state level industry has a different view on that. I need to kind of dig into where in the history of the Clean Water Act that's over 50 years old now, did that intent of the law get lost? For this episode on the regulatory side, I also wanted to talk to state regulators in North Carolina about what's been done. And there was a consent decree that was reached uh, that required a lot of mitigation. Um, actually, current EPA Administrator Michael Regan was the head of the Department of Environmental Quality in North Carolina when all this transpired. Um, obviously, he now has moved on. But I did speak to the current secretary of DEQ in North Carolina, Elizabeth Beiser, about what is required of this facility under the consent decree. So in 2017, we stopped the process discharge, process wastewater, which is basically any kind of water coming from their industrial processes that was being discharged into the Cape Fear River. As of 2017, that stopped. We know that the groundwater at that site is heavily contaminated. And that was one of the largest contributors to PFAS loading into the Cape Fear River. Yeah. And so the consent order um, provided for a very large, unprecedented of its type barrier wall system with the groundwater extraction wells behind it. And yeah. so DEQ issued an NP NPDES permit for that um, permit requires a 99.97% reduction in the PFAS uh, loading. So what you're doing is you're taking that groundwater, putting it through granular activated carbon systems, 
before it's discharged back into the Cape Fear River. The other part of it would be air pollution. Uh, so we required a thermal oxidizer to be put on, on the um, smokestack there. And so that's getting at that pollution I mentioned earlier that's affected residents 18 miles and counting upwind of the facility. So there are pretty comprehensive and effective measures in place at this facility, the DuPont slash Camorris facility on the Cape Fear River um, that is, you know, apparently ended the flow of PFAS into the environment. Uh, one of the very interesting things is that now this permit that the facility is operating under is viewed uh, with high regard by environmental organizations. And there's some question as to why it's not being used in other places. To me, is it shows the promise of the existing regulatory structure. Because with no new laws, no new regulations, DEQ issued a permit for that facility that requires the company to take PFAS levels from the hundreds of thousands of parts per trillion down to essentially non-detect. Mm. And that's all done under existing law. It can be done across the country at, at sites where they're treating contaminated wastewater. And so that permit, from what I've seen, it's the strongest permit issued to any facility anywhere in the country and really should be the model for how we control PFAS going forward. That's a pretty powerful statement from Jeff Gissler at the Southern Environmental Law Center. Uh, you have this major advocacy organization that's saying this permit that's been issued here is excellent. This is how we should be controlling PFAS from industrial facilities, keeping these chemicals out of the environment. I, I am wondering the same thing. Um, why has this same permit not been used uh, for other facilities in North Carolina? Why are other states not uh, copying this and using it at facilities there? Uh, and it just, it just <laughs> leaves me a little bit dumbfounded uh, when we as a country are trying to get our hands around PFAS, state and federal regulators are trying to get their hands around PFAS. You've got a great example of how it's been done here at this facility. Why is that not being rolled out elsewhere? One of the things that gives me a lot of hope and optimism is it seems that the legal tide is turning. You see in the news all of these uh, settlements, agreements, uh, where companies, industry are now uh, being, felt, being found responsible, being held liable for the pollution that they're putting out there. Polluters are supposed to pay. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be ratepayers, utilities, municipalities uh, that have to come up with the dollars to clean up the pollution. It's supposed to be who puts that stuff in the environment. That is starting to happen, and it gives me a lot of hope. One specific area that I'm really interested in on that liability front is who's liable. I mentioned earlier that that facility in Fayetteville was a DuPont facility for decades. When they started realizing that researchers and scientists were finding out about Gen X in the river, they spun off into another company, Kimors, and they put that facility under Kimors, really so that it would be a legal shield to liability. I am so happy that my local utility, this small utility in Wilmington, North Carolina, has taken DuPont to court 
in their home state of Delaware to say, no, 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 you cannot avoid liability like that. You have to be part of this. Kim Wars was a spinoff from DuPont. Uh, DuPont re reorganized itself. They created another company called Corteva. That's been a focus of litigation here in North Carolina. And then Cape Fair Public Utility Authority has, has sued Kim Wars and, and that group in, in Delaware as well. And the issue there is, you know, can you use these corporate restructuring laws to avoid liability? The state of North Carolina filed a case against Kim Wars, DuPont, and Corteva in state court going for natural resources damages. Mm. And part of their basis for that and for keeping DuPont and Corteva in particular in the litigation was that they engaged in this corporate restructuring for the purpose of avoiding liability. Again, the local utility trying to stop this from happening, the state trying to stop this from happening. Uh, and it certainly makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm sure it's going to take years to get resolution of those cases, but it's going to be very interesting to follow what happens and see what the impacts are from the ultimate resolution of that case. What does that mean uh, in situations around the country and who's liable? I did have one unplanned episode in the series. Uh, EPA announced its draft drinking water standards for PFAS, and it came to Wilmington, North Carolina to make this announcement, the place that I live, a place that's been heavily impacted by PFAS, the state that EPA Administrator Michael Regan came from, his home state, where he also again served as the secretary uh, for the Department of Environmental Quality. So I was able to go to that announcement and go to that event and cover it as a member of the media. Really kind of a bizarre full circle moment for me, again, having lived here from 1997 to 2001 and having drank the water. Um, EPA also made this announcement on the campus of the University of North Carolina Wilmington, my alma mater. Uh, and here I was, you know, 20 years later, uh, after, after having worked at EPA also, covering this news. So EPA announced these draft drinking water standards uh, at, at four parts per trillion. And this decision has raised a lot of questions from many corners of the water sector. Uh, I don't know what the answers are, but these are some of the questions that are out there. Does the science support the levels being set that low? Are the threats to public health that high that the levels of PFAS need to be that low? There has been tremendous public concern uh, and outrage about PFAS over the past several years. There's been a lot of pressure put on EPA to act uh, and pressure put on the White House to act on PFAS. Is this level indicative of that pressure? Is that what's where this came from? Are these regulations being proposed before the science is really complete enough on public health? Again, these are questions that are out there. What does it mean to set a drinking water standard at the limits of technology's ability to detect a chemical? What does it mean to set a drinking water standard really at the almost the limits of technology's ability to treat for that chemical and get it out of the water.
there are thousands of water systems across the country that are going to have to upgrade treatment to deal with PFAS and to meet those drinking water standards. This comes at a time when they are struggling with aging infrastructure, a thin workforce, and a host of other regulatory challenges. Where is the money going to come from for that upgrade that's needed? As we heard, $43 million for my utility to upgrade its treatment. All these systems across the country are going to have to take similar steps. I had the chance to ask EPA Administrator Michael Regan that question. President Biden has been focused on this since day one, working with Congress. And we have about $9 billion uh, dedicated to prioritizing uh, those water utilities and communities uh, that are on the front lines and are resource constrained the most. Uh, we recognize that that is not enough for every single water utility in the country, uh, but it's a shot in the arm. Uh, so there are, are resources for uh, water utilities. There are dedicated resources, as um, Secretary Beiser mentioned, specifically for smaller rural communities. Um, but there's also resources embedded in our budget. And you will see that as the president advocates for EPA's new budget this year, again, he's asking for more resources to continue to combat this pervasive issue. So Administrator Regan talks about how there are federal dollars to help water systems deal with PFAS. That's a good thing. Keep in mind, those are taxpayer dollars. So like Kemp Burdett said a while ago, it's, all, it's always the people that end up paying right, for the polluters. Uh, this is where these polluters should be held accountable for paying for the treatment that's needed downstream. Uh, there's also some other issues in here. There's a lot of utilities that might have very low levels of PFAS already, but not be below that four parts per trillion. So maybe they're at 10 parts per trillion, 20 parts per trillion, pretty low levels of PFAS, but they're still going to need to spend millions and millions of dollars to put in treatment to come into compliance. What's that scale there? How does that balance out? The other issue is these standards are going to be put in place and then there's going to be a few years until uh, systems need to be in compliance. But the process of designing, funding, building and putting into operation a treatment system is a multi-year process. So basically all these water systems are going to need to be aggressively going after projects, putting them in place in a, in a very tight time frame. That's a, that's a challenge there. Waterloo. As this series comes to an end, I have some concluding thoughts myself. Some of these are, again, professional questions that are out there. Some of this is personal commentary. Uh, one thing I like to think about with PFAS is a bathtub. And let's say that bathtub is overflowing. Would you get a bucket and just start bailing it out? Or would you turn the water off at the tap first? I think that's a bit of the problem with PFAS is we are taking a bucket brigade approach as a country and not going aggressively enough after that tap, that source. Where is that pollution coming from? Remember, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now, we certainly need to be cleaning up contaminated sites. We need to be dealing with treatment where it's needed so people have clean water, but we have got to be going after 
PFAS uh, at the source and where those polluters are putting it into the water. The one other aspect of PFAS that I think is off base is about 80 to 90% of the average American's PFAS exposure is not from drinking water. It's from all these other sources, consumer products, household goods, diet, dust in the air. But it seems like all of the attention is really being focused on water and on water utilities. The burden is being placed on these systems to deal with PFAS when there are all these other ways that people are exposed. Is it just because it's easy to go after these regulated entities, these municipalities, these public water systems, uh, or and that it's hard to go after industry that's responsible for coming up with these chemicals and putting them into all of the products that we use every day? Where is the aggressive action on that front to get them out of our environment. I know that there were some PFAS that were phased out like 20 years ago and that blood levels of PFAS has really dropped in Americans because of that. That's great. But as we know, there's thousands of spin-off varieties of PFAS uh, that are being used. These companies just come up with replacements and put those in the products. So I think there is a, a fundamental... Uh, error with how we are going after these chemicals and making the water sector shoulder the burden. Recently, there was a story that really just kind of illustrates to me how broken some of the system is. Uh, EPA, US EPA, allowed uh, Chemours to have permission to import up to 4 million pounds of Gen X from the Netherlands to North Carolina and really to that facility that's in Fayetteville. And I, I think Kim Moore says they're going to be using this Gen X in the production processes there, and it's better to reuse and recycle Gen X than to have to make new stuff. Uh, and then after it gets used there, I think it goes to a facility in Texas, one of the largest hazardous waste facilities in the country. Uh, and I think EPA said, well, because of the laws, they don't have the authority to deny uh, Kim Moore's, the ability to import this Gen X from the Netherlands. One of the reasons that's happening is because the Netherlands is cracking down on Gen X and Kim Moore's. So it's just kind of crazy to me that this facility dumped Gen X and PFAS in our river for 40 years. They're under a consent order and have to take all these steps to not let it out into the environment. They are in all this different litigation, seeking compensation for the downstream treatment, seeking to be held liable and not be allowed to spin off. Uh, we have people here in this region that are still terrified, that are having their blood tested for PFAS, but this company is allowed to import 4 million pounds more into our state. Maybe EPA doesn't technically have the authority to stop them, but isn't it time to find a way to find that authority, to take a stand, 
to decide to do something different, uh, it's just it's just kind of baffling to me and many others. Back on the good side of things, uh, a lot of good has come from the Cape Fear region being one of these early communities to wrestle with contamination. As we've heard, it galvanized the scientific community. There were lessons that were learned here um, from scientists, from advocates, from the regulatory side, from the water utility side that have now been shared across the country. And so countless communities have a leg up in their response and fight against PFAS. Some of the things that really give me hope are the ability of our scientific community to learn, the power of technology to treat PFAS, and the resolve of advocates and people themselves to fight for cleaner water. Thanks again to the sponsors that made this series possible, Black & Veatch, Ultra, and PFASCOMS.com. Please connect with them, learn more about their work. Thank you all who have listened to this episode and others in the series. I know that it was extremely informative for me, and I hope it was for the audience. You're in the water loop. Water loop, water loop, water loop.